local news, culture, and NPR. From WJFF. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Sullivan County Head Start. We'll have an update, the latest from Sullivan County Commissioner of Health and Human Services, John Little, and Laura Quigley, Commissioner of the Sullivan County Division of Community Services. Hidden subsidies propping up New York's fossil fuel industry. The state wants to phase out fossil fuels, but localities have given over a billion dollars in tax breaks to help keep them around. We'll learn more from New York Focus, the independent newsroom reporting on how the state really works. Science Stories, former science teacher and Radio Catskill volunteer Joe Johnson is back with some of the most fascinating science stories of the week, including why are blueberries blue? Plus, Maggie Fitzpatrick is here with her moving toward health advice, which may involve blueberries, and a preview of Act Underground Theater Company's reading of Love Letters this Saturday. But first, the news. In Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Stocks opened sharply lower this morning after a report showing a smaller-than-expected drop in inflation last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled 525 points in early trading. The Labor Department says consumer prices in January were up 3.1 percent from a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before, but still higher than forecasters had expected. Rising rents drove much of the price hike between December and January. Food prices were also up during the month, while gasoline prices fell. The higher-than-expected inflation reading suggests it could take longer for the Federal Reserve to start cutting interest rates. Before it does so, the central bank says it wants to see more evidence that inflation is headed back towards its target of 2%. Market odds of an interest rate cut in May fell after the inflation report, although investors are still fairly confident rates will start to come down by June. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This morning, the Senate passed a foreign aid bill that would offer help to Ukraine, Israel, and some Pacific nations. A group of Republican senators had filibustered the bill all night, trying to slow it down, but it passed 70 to 29. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer urged House lawmakers to pass the package, but some Republicans say they plan to block it. Comedian John Stewart has returned to host his old program, The Daily Show, after a nearly nine-year break. Right away, he launched into his trademark humor, lampooning presidential candidates Joe Biden and Donald Trump. One thing we know for certain is this. We have two candidates who are chronologically outside the norm of anyone who has run uh, for the presidency in this country, in the history of this country. They are the oldest people ever to run for president, breaking by only four years the record that they set. John Stewart will host the Comedy Central show on Monday nights. He'll also serve as an executive producer. The biggest children's hospital in Chicago has been offline for nearly two weeks due to a cybersecurity issue. From member station WBEC, Kristen Shorsha reports parents are frustrated. Lori Children's Hospital is nationally renowned for treating the sickest, most complex kids. On January 31st, Lori says a criminal threat led the hospital to take down phones, email, the electronic medical record system, and an online portal where families message with doctors. Lori set up a call center, but the effort hasn't been smooth for everyone. Deborah Land needed a paper order for her daughter to get blood work before an upcoming appointment. Lori made a, a big deal about how this was a service they were providing to the families of patients. It's really a black hole. She said she left two messages with the call center and showed up to Lori twice with a note for her daughter's doctor, but wasn't allowed to leave it. A nurse got in touch with Land five days after she first called. For NPR News, I'm Kristen Schorsch in Chicago. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. Russia has put the prime minister of neighboring Estonia on a wanted list. The Kremlin blames Estonian leader Kaya Kallas for trying to remove Soviet-era monuments in the former Soviet satellite nation. Many of the world's migrating animals, whales, birds, cats, and others are in decline. That's according to a new report from the United Nations. As NPR's Nathan Rott reports, the U.N. estimates that nearly one-fifth of the species that were assessed are facing extinction. The new report from the United Nations is the first-ever global assessment of the world's migrating animals, and the results were clear. Human activities, chiefly over-exploitation through fishing and hunting, and habitat loss from deforestation and development, are putting many of the world's migrators at risk. 
Amy Frankel is the executive secretary of the United Nations Convention on Migratory Species. We have lions, we have whales, we have turtles, all the sea turtles. We have amazing amount of birds. So we're talking about species that are very familiar to people, and yet we're finding that many of them are, are in trouble. Among the recommendations the report gives were a call to strengthen existing protections for species and conserving more areas. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Divers off the Caribbean island of Tobago say they're working to plug an oil leak from a ship. It was abandoned last week by its crew, and it's not clear who owns the vessel. Leaking oil is coating some of Tobago's beaches. The Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago says this is creating a national emergency. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. We have an update on the abrupt closure of Sullivan County Head Start. We've been following that story since Friday, February 2nd, when Sullivan County Head Start announced on social media that they were closing until further notice, effective immediately. The sudden closure left over 300 children and their families without services, as well as 83 full-time and 11 part-time employees out of work. They're a nonprofit organization located at State Route 52 in Woodburn, founded in 1989. They had operated Head Start and early Head Start programs in Sullivan County, and they also had two facilities in Monticello that were are also closed. Last Friday on Radio Chatskill, Congressman Mark Molinaro, who represents New York's 19th District, which includes our listening area, told me that the provider has now relinquished its grant, clearing the way for a new provider to take over. John Little, Sullivan County Commissioner of Health and Human Services, says an interim management company will assist in restarting Head Start operations till, until a long-term solution can be established. Last night on the local edition, Jason Dole got the latest on this story from Sullivan County Commissioner of Health and Human Services John Little and Laura Quigley, Commissioner of the Sullivan County Division of Community Resources. We're quickly moving and responding to, you know, what's been presented to us at the county level. So, you know, what I can talk about is uh, the things that we've been doing individually for for the kids and their families. And Lars played a very active role uh, with the board and, and getting them up and running as quickly as possible and kind of harkens back to the days of the pandemic for us when <laughs> yeah, really. I brought my military training and uh, emergency community assistance concept uh, to, uh, to Laura that she's taken off and run with. And, you know, we're back in crisis management mode a bit, but we're, uh, it's something we're familiar with. You're managing the crisis. I think it was hard for me to follow. And we've been following this right along. It was hard for me to really get my head around this story. Um, uh, uh, until really looking at this and realizing that this is essentially seems to be a change in who is running head start, that that's, that's basically what we're going through. Um, it, how that I, yeah so how that works is um head start Sullivan County Head Start Incorporated is funded through the office of Head Start in Washington DC okay so by relinquishing the grant office of Head Start has contracts with an organization called Community Development Institute otherwise known as CDI through their contract it's a national contract they come in as the interim manager and they come in to get Head Start back up and running, get the program up and running quickly. Um, and then there's a closeout process that happens for the program that Sullivan County Head Start had that they have to go through. Both myself, Donna Willie, who's the chair of, I mean, who's the CEO for the Child Care Council, and legislator Brian McPhillips, the three of us have been appointed to the board and we're going to kind of help them through that transition We've already been in touch. Uh, CDI has already been in touch with us. We had a a virtual meeting today. They're on the ground already. We're hoping in the next few weeks that um, Head Start will be reopened. In the next few weeks? In the next few weeks. They're looking to – they'll be reaching out to the staff to uh, set up uh, virtual interviews. They're going to be reaching out to the parents over the next week um, to get – you know, to be able to talk to the parents, let them know what the process is and, and what's going on moving forward. So for whatever 
uh, brought this to, I will say that the Office of Head Start has responded. They have a very good mechanism in place to respond to things like this. It then allows either Sullivan County Head Start or another provider to reapply when the grant becomes available again. And John, what what are you looking at in this? So with my primary responsibility being social services, I lead out with making sure that the uh, individual kids are taken care of. And health as Health and Human Services Commissioner, I also have public health, and we provide the early intervention services. So the focus last week was very much on making sure that uh, the medically fragile kids were taken care of first, that they had access to all of their occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech uh, services. So there were 74 kids that were involved uh, with that, um, that we made sure that they were reconnected to their services, uh, that we found places for them to be seen since the school was closed. <clears throat> and then we've also looked to help um, either families that where parents aren't able to work or um, in working with Lars folks, folks that applied for unemployment to get them assistance. So, you know, we helped um, 17 different folks who applied for unemployment, helped them apply for food stamps, uh, temporary assistance, home energy um, assistance program. Um, and we also, through social services, can provide subsidies to families. So Head Start, that's a free federal program for the families that qualify um, for us at the county and state level, we can get people into mainstream daycares um, with with subsidy payments. So we're able to help with with some of that. So we were processing uh, subsidy applications last week to help families that were in the uh, in the most urgent need. But we're all pretty encouraged by the fact that you know it looks like CDI and the uh, uh, with them coming in from the office of Head Start, that's going to give us a chance to get back on our feet here real quick. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about: is is does this impact uh, parents' abilities? Uh, to work, you know, if their kids aren't in program. So getting kids into daycare is one way to, to help with that. Yeah, ab- absolutely it is. And it's, you know, something that, you know, Laura and I talk a fair amount about, and it's something that we deal with all the time. There's certainly not enough childcare to go around. That's a nationwide issue. Um, but with, um, you know, roughly 330 slots shutting down all at once in a county with not a lot of space available to begin with, that's that's pretty traumatic for the families involved. So we wanted to help them as quickly as we could. Um, so folks are, you know, still welcome to call us. Um, our phone number is uh, 845-292-0100. That's the main switchboard at Social Services. And um, when folks call there during our business hours, um, and if there's snow, we might not be there tomorrow, but um, certainly you can get in contact with us via that number, again, 845-292-0100, and we're helping folks out get connected to the services. And uh you know, it's also a good opportunity for me to speak to uh, Unite Us, our social care network, and uh, it's another way for us to connect people to services, and folks can go right on to the county's website, find social services, and ask for help right through the website. We actually have a web form now that allows people to get connected to not just our services, but services all over the county. And to piggyback off of um, John, one of the offices I oversee is the Center for Workforce Development, and... Uh, right from when this happened, we got the word out that regardless of whether this was opened, uh, closed for a week, two weeks, whatever, that the staff needed to apply for unemployment to get whether either temporary or full. So they set it up um, down at the Career Center for when staff come in, they're triaged by the director, Lorene Gebeline. If they need housing, food, whatever, they're referred to social services They're allowed, you know, they can apply right there for unemployment, either online or over the phone, and they can immediately get linked with whatever services. But I think the big thing is um, when you're when you lose your job, whether you know it's happening or you don't know it's happening, it's very traumatic and it upends your life. So one of the things that the Center for Workforce Development is also providing is that shoulder to cry on for people, and some have, um, and helping them to understand that this this is, you know, temporary, things are going to reopen again, there's other opportunities, and, and to kind of help them hang in there and, and keep going. Um, and the other thing, too, were, like you mentioned before, Jason, those parents whose jobs um, 
could be in jeopardy for losing their child care because we know that the folks that use Head Start a lot of times are your entry-level workers, and so they are most economically fragile when it comes to losing their positions. So it was really important to make sure, um, and, you know, John's team did such a great job of hooking people up immediately, and I know the Child Care Council got involved in that as well um, with providers. So we went as fast as we could um, to make sure that we were able to help people But if there is staff out there that is looking still undecided or didn't realize that they could apply for unemployment, they can call the Career Center at um, 845-794-3340, or they can actually go online to dol.ny.gov and apply for unemployment right there online. Um, And then they can always call the Career Center with any follow-up questions. And uh, and just along those lines, you were talking about the, like the workers. I mean, when I first heard about the story, the the first question I had was like, "Oh my God, how many families does does this impact? How many kids and parents are affected?" But um, just seeing the, this information, eighty three full time and eleven part time employees, yes, out of work. I mean, that's that's a big blow to those folks. Is the plan to try to, to when it restarts, that those folks get to keep their jobs? Is that, that that is the plan? They have to go through the process again because it's like having a new employer come in to run the program. Yeah. So they'll have their own separate license, and everyone will have to go through um, the interviewing process again. Uh, but the fact that they have a lot of the necessary fingerprinting background and all that already done should help speed that process up. Speed it up a little. Okay. And the, and they will know the new, the new people running this and, and the, the CDI, they will know that these folks used to do this. And oh, this so this is a couple all weeks part. ago. The thing I was so impressed with is they have a structure in place. They have this down. They know what they're doing. Um, the thing that I appreciated also was so many of the people that are involved in this from CDI are former Head Start employees. So they know the program, they know uh, what's involved, and all they kept talking about, which I really appreciated, and I know my fellow board members did as well, was the focus was on the children, was getting the children back in, getting them back to school again. And from our perspective, with the work that both John and I do, those number of slots that were lost at Head Start is roughly about 15% of the available slots for childcare in the county. So that is a serious blow, um, even on a temporary basis. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but of course, the CDI um, doing this job and doing it as quickly as, as you guys can, that's still just a short-term measure. There's got to be a long-term solution can you tell me at all how that process is supposed to go to find a, a long-term uh, provider for this? And that is where the Office of um, Head Start comes in because CDI at the, will – At the federal level. At the federal yeah. level because CDI is um, an interim management team. They'll be there as long until we get a new uh, local provider. So Office of Head Start – will do what they need to do, and when the next round of funding comes out, that comes out, and they're going to look for local providers. Now, Sullivan Head Start could reapply. There could be some other provider locally or maybe even a provider in another county that wishes to expand, whatever that might be. But CDI will be there until a new provider is chosen, and then there's a tried-and-true structure of transition for that as well. Right. And uh, then this also means at that point, you say in another round of funding, is that like a new grant from the federal government? Because part of the news here is that, that you know, we've relinquished this grant, I guess, as a necessary step to change providers. Uh, but will there still be federal money after all? This well, is done? yes. I mean, Head Start, the funding goes in five year blocks that are renewed annually based on, you know, fiscal performance, all of that stuff. So when that comes around again. Um, is when it will, then people will. It's not like a special pot of money. Uh, this is the Head Start funding that right. is that is available and in, in out there. All right. John, anything else? Well, I think one thing to, a couple things maybe to remember in all this is, um, you know, no matter what that medium to longer term looks like, there are um, more child care providers coming. Um, Healthy Kids has recently expanded. They're well known throughout the Hudson Valley and they've, 
They've expanded in Monticello, Liberty, and I believe they have a center open in Narrowsburg as well now. So, um, and we've also expanded pediatric mental health through Aster Services for Children and Families. So they're uh, on our campus in Liberty, and they have uh, Head Start operations in other counties. So I'm as as tough as the moment is that we're in for all the families involved. I am I'm kind of optimistic about where we're headed, and I think um, it's also important for us to mention that. Although, yes, we are still in a very tough moment and we want to get open as quick as we can, I think the uh, support that we've gotten from uh, our elected officials, Congressman Molinaro, Assemblywoman Gunther, Senator Oberacher, Senator Schumer, Gillibrand, I mean, they all engaged right away. Our local electeds in the county, they jumped right on this. They were very aggressive in working on this, So, um, which was um, uh, very, very good, I think, from our perspective to see that they were – the elected officials got right into this with us and um, and really wanted to do the right thing quickly. All right. We're, we're going to have to go before we do. I want to remind people real quick where they can go for more information. For example, the number for social services is 845-292-0100. That's 292-0100. Center for Workforce Development, a career center is at 845-794-3340. That's 794 794- Three three four zero county website sullivanny.us and any other place you want to direct folks just for unemployment um, dol.ny.us thank you so much for joining us we've been talking with commissioner of health and human services john little and laura quigley commissioner sullivan county division of community resources thank you for coming in here to explain all of this to us and uh, keep us connected to what's going on thank you thanks jason And a note from Sullivan County Government, due to inclement weather today, all offices other than the 24-hour facilities are opening this morning at 11. We'll take a break, and when we come back, hidden subsidies propping up New York's fossil fuel industry. The state wants to phase out fossil fuels and transition to renewables, but localities have given over a billion dollars in tax breaks to help keep them around. We'll learn more right after this. This is Radio Chatsko. Support for Radio Catskill comes from The Furniture Restore, located on Main Street in Jeffersonville, specializing in antique and vintage furniture, rugs, art, and lighting, because buying well-made and pre-owned is a better choice for the planet. Winter hours online at therestorejville.com. And from The River Reporter, the community newspaper serving four counties along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania and New York, riverreporter.com. And from listeners like you. Everyone. Three late night music shows debut on Radio Catskill this week. Virtual Soundscapes, Thursday night at 10, Electric Mountain, Saturday at midnight, and Ambient Barn, Sunday at 11. Plus, old school sessions will be on earlier, right after Liberation Station. Four hours of club classics, funk, reggae, rap, and more with DJ Chunks and Selector Starkey. Now, 8 to midnight, Saturday night. Great local DJ shows here on Radio Catskill. Yes, the real good news. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impact people's lives and how the state really works. Radio Catskill has partnered with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism. They recently wrote about an issue that intersects with economics, environment, and policy. New York is encountering an obstacle as it strives to phase out fossil fuels and transition to renewable energy sources. New York Focus reports that local tax breaks distributed by industrial development agencies, or IDAs, have subsidized the fossil fuel industry to the tune of about a billion dollars in the last 13 years. Radio Catskill's Jason Dole spoke to reporter Julia Rock about IDAs and the role they play in New York's energy industry. So just to zoom out a little bit, New York has about 110 of these local agencies at the town and county level called industrial development authorities that give out a little bit over a billion dollars each year in tax breaks, largely property tax breaks. And these agencies were set up to attract economic development to different areas and economic development, I mean, mainly meaning jobs. Um, by handing out tax breaks to corporations sort of with the idea that they could lure them to the area, you know, to create jobs. And one thing that I realized while working as a climate reporter this fall is that developers of all types, wind, solar, natural gas power plant developers, all 
see these industrial development agencies as playing a very important role in getting projects built. Because if you are trying to build a huge piece of infrastructure, one of your biggest costs is going to be property taxes. So oftentimes when developers say, again, you're looking to build a wind farm, a solar farm, maybe a power plant, you know, when you're figuring out where you're going to build it and how you're going to get it done, you, you really want to be able to negotiate a lower property tax bill. So the story I wrote this fall about wind and solar was about how some um, local county legislator, legislatures or local activists sort of saw these industrial development agencies actually as a way to block projects because they thought, you know, if they could convince the industrial development agency not to hand out a property tax break, um, then maybe the wind or solar project wouldn't come to the area. And now the most uh, recent article that we're going to talk about, co-written with Colin Kinneberg, the title is Hidden Subsidies Prop Up New York's Fossil Fuel Industry. And it's almost like a, a corollary to that story because this, at least your opening narrative, is about a, a town, you know, Athens, essentially trying to uh, use the IDA to not renew tax breaks for a, a fossil fuel energy producer, a natural gas power plant. Yeah, so... Uh, as as was the case, you know, with, with the renewables that I wrote about in the fall, it turns out that some of the biggest property tax breaks that IDAs have given over the past decade or so have been to power plants, which, you know, as you can imagine, are these huge multi-billion dollar pieces of infrastructure where if they paid full property taxes, it could be a really high bill. Um, and so I was writing a little bit. The, the opening of the story you mentioned is about a huge natural gas power plant in the Hudson Valley in Athens, New York, that um, over a decade ago was granted uh, a tax break, uh, a break on its property tax bills to operate. Um, Last year, the deal for the tax break was set to expire, at which point the power plant would have had to go on to pay full property tax bills. So they went to the IDA to renegotiate uh, another tax break for another 15 years. What's sort of remarkable about the timing here, of course, was that when the plant was first built, New York was in a position where it was promoting natural gas development. Uh, Natural gas was supposed to replace coal. It was sort of seen as a bridge fuel, um, which, of course, has turned out to be wrong, but in in the energy transition, a way to reduce emissions while getting rid of coal. Now, of course, the state is trying to shut down its fossil fuel infrastructure. In 2019, the state passed really uh, aggressive emissions reductions targets. So it was sort of remarkable that uh, just last year, a huge natural gas power plant is trying to get another very large subsidy to operate. Part of what you've identified in all of this reporting is that there is a disconnect between state goals, state administration, and then local administration through uh, these IDAs. There's, there's actually kind of a disconnect that you've really found here. I think there are sort of two things going on here. I mean, first, it seems like these industrial development agencies are playing a really important role in New York climate and energy politics uh, because they have the power to sort of shape the finances of constructing an energy project. At the same time, sort of as you point out, you know, a lot of climate policy in New York is being written at the state level and, you know, specifically the goal to phase out fossil fuels and to spur a bunch of new development of wind and solar. And yet, if you go down to the local level, It's not always the case uh, that the industrial development authority is in alignment with the state. And that, you know, that might be in part for understandable reasons. I mean, um, in in the case of the wind and solar project, as we had discussed, IDAs are supposed to create jobs and those projects don't create a lot of permanent jobs. You know, at the same time, in in the case of these these, um, fossil fuel power plants, I think a lot of times the towns or counties will think, you know, even though we have to offer them a tax break to come, it's still much better to have them come in and be paying millions of dollars of years in property taxes on land that otherwise probably wouldn't be creating very much revenue. So I think in terms of the mandate of the local authority, you can maybe understand why they're making the decisions they are, and yet it is going against, in many cases, the state's climate goals. Is there going to be a reckoning at some point? Have folks at the state level picked up on what you've picked up on here, this disconnect? Totally. I mean, one thing that's been interesting in all of these stories is that legislators have been, you know, extremely interested in 
our findings. And there is a state entity that is in charge of oversight of the IDAs. It's the authority's budget office. But that is an agency that has historically been pretty understaffed. Your listeners might remember that last year there was a big state Senate investigation led by Senator Skoufis into one of these industrial development authorities in Orange County. And they actually put an independent monitor in place there to uh, basically keep an eye on what the IDA has been up to. So there's definitely been a little bit of legislative attention and statewide attention on these IDAs. But certainly, you know, I as a reporter, I'm very curious to see how legislators respond to our findings that focus that the IDAs are not always in alignment with the state climate goals. I I can see some good news in your reporting here because you have a nice graph here that's actually showing the amount of subsidies IDAs are giving to renewables seems to be increasing. Am I reading this chart right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So even though, um, you know, as I had said, there were some IDAs that were very resistant to providing subsidies for renewable energy. There have been others that really see attracting wind and solar as a great way in particular to grow their property tax base because having, you know, really expensive infrastructure come to a region that is mostly rural um, could, you know, even again, if they're getting a a break, could still increase uh, the size of property taxes that a county can collect by quite a bit. So I think it was 22 was the first year that uh, IDAs in New York actually handed out more subsidies to renewables than to fossil fuel projects. So that's an interesting trend. Uh, It's moving in the right direction if you have lofty climate goals, but is it moving fast enough to meet those lofty climate goals? You know, one thing that was interesting, too, about writing about the wind and solar projects is I think there are a lot of uh, state lawmakers, even those who, you know, really want the state to meet its climate goals, who would say, well, we just really shouldn't be leaving this up to you know, local authorities at all. So if we want to be, if we think, you know, a wind or a solar company is going to need a subsidy for it to be viable to build, we should be doing that at the state level, not at the local level. But yes, totally. One way to read this data might be, well, you know, at least the the tides are turning and um, more money now is going to clean energy than to fossil fuels. Anything else that you found uh, interesting or surprising as you were working on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I've really found fascinating about reporting on uh, IDAs is it gives me a glimpse to what sort of the economic dynamics for towns and counties are around this project. Because, you know, as I said before, obviously providing a tax break to a huge corporation uh, might seem like an unnecessary waste of tax revenue, which I think is how a lot of people have framed this. And that might be the case. I think this also however, does uh, give a sense that, you know, having a big wind farm or solar farm or in in some cases it was a power plant, you know, come to your town while you might see many downsides could also, you know, increase the money that's available for schools um, or decrease the property tax burden on homeowners. So that's been really an interesting thing to watch play out. And I know you are watching all of this. Have you identified anything that you think needs to change to address any of these conflicts or problems caused by these subsidies? I mean, one thing that just has been really remarkable to me is sort of how little attention there has been from, you know, state energy regulators, uh, the state climate agency, state lawmakers on, uh, you know, how IDAs might be impacting climate politics in New York. Um, and so that definitely seems like something to me. And, you know, obviously part of my job is is bringing people's attention to this. But I think that's something that seems like it really needs to happen is having even, you know, more uh, transparency and attention focused on this. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to go over all this. Thanks so much for having me on. Jason Dole speaking to reporter Julia Rock of New York Focus. You can find this article on our website, wjffradio.org, and also at nysfocus.org. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, science stories that are kind of interesting to us. Joe Johnson is here right after this. It's Radio Chatsko. Thank you for all the ways you help WJFF Radio Chatsko. Your support sustains the news, music, and local voices that make up WJFF. It's only possible because of your generosity. Help keep it going. Consider signing up to be a sound supporter to make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to WJFFradio.org. 
And thank you for supporting public radio in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Now, the latest in science news, former Port Jervis science teacher and Radio Catskill volunteer Joe Johnson is back with some more of the fascinating science stories of the week, including radioactive wolves, the NASA Ingenuity helicopter, and why are blueberries blue? This is a great story. This uh, came out this week. The question about it being blue is is because blue is an uncommon color in fruits. If you think about it, there's not many blue fruits. Um, but the February 7th journal, uh, Science Advances, had a story about why. And the, the uh, reason is kind of fascinating. If you look at a blueberry, the inside is not blue. It's like a deep, deep, deep reddish. Yeah. Okay. And the reason is it has those those antioxidants you mentioned. They're very deep red. They're anthocyanins, and that's why everybody is is so hyped up about blueberries lately because antioxidants are good for you. Now, if these plants have or these berries have a lot of anthocyanins in them, and there's a lot in the skin too, shouldn't the skin be deep red? And it's not. So what they did is they looked at the skin itself under a scanning electron microscope. Now, if you've used a microscope in biology class, it was probably 40 to 400 power. Scanning electron microscopes use beams of electrons instead of light, and they can magnify up to a half a million times. So they can see the surface in great, great detail. And what they found, the um, outside of the fruit, is covered with these molecular nanostructures made of wax. And they're little crystals, and they selectively reflect blue light and actually ultraviolet light, too. So because the blue light is being reflected back to you, you see it as blue. You would not think that this was like a waxy exterior. Yeah, and if you if you actually take a blueberry and rub it, you can rub the wax off. Oh, wow. And if you'll notice, it's very deep, deep reddish underneath. In sciencenews.org, they have the images of the blueberry, the Oregon grape, and the plum under the electron mm-hmm. microscope, mm-hmm. which is really revealing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the technology of sciences is amazing these days, what we can see, what we can determine. Um, and as you said, they were seen in Oregon grapes and some plums as well. And these are tiny, tiny little crystals, like five micrometers yeah. across, five millionths of a meter across, just tiny things. How'd they get that blueberry under that microscope without <laughs> smushing it? Uh, good question. They actually have to do it in a vacuum chamber, too. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. All right, let's go to a wow. We always find some interesting stories here in science uh, that cool are a little science. that that are. I was going to say like the borderline creepy. This headline <laughs> is the headline is Chernobyl's mutant wolves. Apparently, they've developed resistance to cancer. So let's talk about these wolves in Chernobyl, Absolutely. and then what what would the scientists have discovered? Well, if you'll remember, in 1986, the Chernobyl disaster occurred. They had a meltdown of one of their reactors. And it spread radiation and radioactive materials over a large area, which is now called the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. Now, no humans are allowed in there, although there are some reports that some people have snuck back in. There were a lot of farms in there. There were a lot of people lived, you know, had to give up their lives. Um, but uh, Kara Love, who is an evolutionary biologist from Princeton University, had a question about these wolves. You know, how is the radiation? She's an evolutionary biologist. So she wondered, how is the radiation affecting the wolves, affecting their evolution? So in 2014, she traveled to the Chernobyl exclusion zone, trapped a bunch of wolves with with her colleagues, took blood samples, and interestingly, fitted them with collars. And the collars had radiation dosimeters on them that were like immediately uploading, and so they could get a real-time exposure of what, what kind of radiation they were getting. Now, they were getting about 11 millirems a day, a little more than 11 millirems a day. That's six times the dosage that an industrial um, worker would be allowed to have before they would have to be, you know, sent home. Um, OSHA would not be happy if that happened. What they found was that the radiation is having a profound effect on the wolves. They are genetically different from the wolves in the surrounding areas. Their immune systems are so hyped up that they compared them to a cancer victim uh, receiving radiation treatment. And and so they it looks like they have developed genes that are helping them to survive cancer. So there's wildlife that's returned to this area. Absolutely. These wolves are roaming around. There's there are other uh, like owls, horses. But oh. you know when they discuss when they we researchers were there to take these samples and to to try to research what's mm-hmm. going on. 
this is hopefully can lead to some other, you know, positive results for well, treating cancer in humans. Sure, absolutely. If they can identify the genetic sequences, there is a chance that they could be used to help people. But they still have more research to do. They have a lot more research to do. And have been blocked do. because yep. of... The Ukraine war and before that, the, the COVID uh, pandemic. Bit of a halt here in terms of fully recognizing what benefits there are? Well, recently in 2023, and I, I saw a mention of this, they looked at feral dogs in the area and they seemed to find similar results. Now, I'm not sure who did that study. I wasn't able to find that out. The interesting thing, last thing we'll mention on this, is that the wolves are absolutely thriving. Their population densities are super high. They seem to be thriving in this, this radiation-rich environment. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, let's move to Mars, from Chernobyl to Mars. It looks like the Ingenuity helicopter from NASA is no longer working. It is no longer functional. No, absolutely. So the Ingenuity helicopter has been flown on Mars for about three years. It was brought there in 2021 with the Perseverance rover. And it actually like dropped out of the belly of the rover. The rover drew away and it drove away and it unfolded itself and they ran it through a series of tests. It was designed to fly five flights total. And what it did was actually about 72 different flights. Um, the thing just kept going and gets like the Energizer bunny of, of uh, extraterrestrial <laughs> helicopters. Um, but its longest flight was about over 2,300 feet, lasted almost three minutes. I mean, the thing was just amazing. Now, on the last flight, it did 72 flights. On the last flight, apparently the rotor came in contact with the ground and mm. their carbon fiber rotors. And it looks like the end of the rotors have been shredded. And, you know, because of that, it just cannot fly again. It's still in contact with NASA, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. They still, the camera on it is still working, and it'll, it'll probably last for a while. Uh, it is battery powered, so it is going to eventually run down. But, uh, I can foresee someday in the future when a, a, an archaeologist is digging on Mars and will dig it up and it'll be hanging in the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum down in Washington. Or in one of those sci-fi movies where they find it and it comes to life and tells them something that's <laughs> happened in the past. NASA knows where it's sort of stuck. <laughs> they do. They do. It's in a, a an old riverbed near the Jezero Crater, which is uh, what Perseverance is um, looking at right now. And one of the cool things in science is that you get to name things if you discover it. So the NASA scientists decided that they were going to name the place where um, Ingenuity came to rest, Valinor, which, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, is the land of eternal uh, rest and peace. Ah. <laughs> so a little uh, Lord of the Rings reference today. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Ingenuity, and uh, we hope that you rest well. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. Joe Johnson, thank you so much for bringing us some more science. You're very welcome. My pleasure. More science stories from Joe next week. We'll take a quick break and we'll have the health and wellness column from the Sullivan County Democrat with their health and wellness columnist, Maggie Fitzpatrick, moving toward health. We're talking about a controversial subject, breakfast. This is Radio Chatskill. Radio Chatskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, it is generally not an easy time to be a university president. As a Jew, I was appalled. As a president, I was embarrassed. But Michael Roth of Wesleyan University doesn't seem to be having such a hard time. You can't please everyone, but I don't think that's an excuse to say nothing. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This afternoon at 1 o'clock on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. It's Tuesday, and Maggie Fitzpatrick is here. She is the Sullivan County Democrats' health and wellness columnist, and her, her column is Moving Toward Health. It's in today's issue, and also online, scdemocratonline.com. Good morning. Good morning. We're talking about breakfast, a highly debated topic. Uh, yes. How did we get to breakfast as this, uh, the subject of this column in Moving Toward Health today? You know, someone asked me about it. <laughs> and then I was like, 
I'm just going to write a whole article about it just for you. Well, um, you talk about how it is a little bit, uh, you know, debated that some people say that we should have it every day. And there are many other people, I guess, say avoiding it. Uh, where are we landing here? Where, where should we start? I mean, how many times have you heard just yourself? You got to eat breakfast every day. You got to yes. eat it within an hour of waking yes. up or no intermittent fasting is the way to go. You should never right. eat breakfast and don't eat until noon. Right. 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 And truthfully, that decision is going to be different for every person. Like there's no one size fits all breakfast solution out there. There's just not. It's just like everything else. Yeah. You know? And you, you kind of break it down to actually not just breakfast, but you, you kind of relabel it the first meal of the day, whether that's at 6 a.m. or at noon. Your first meal of the day is the most important. Yes. And so that's the real point that I want to get to here is that whether or not you eat breakfast, whether or not you call it breakfast, the first thing you put in your body is really important because you've been sleeping or you've been sleeping and then awake, right? And you haven't given your body any fuel in a long time. So it's ready, right? It's ready to break down anything that you put in very quickly. And what we put in our bodies as our first meal is going to determine how our bodies react for the rest of the day. Well, and when we think of breakfast here in the United States, mainly we think of maybe things that are a little sweet, uh, full of carbohydrates. Uh, even if it is the first meal of the day, that's sort of where people gravitate. Yes. And you're talking about how if you put that into your body first, that's going to impact the rest of your day. Yes, it does. A little bit of a struggle. It Yes, it puts you right on the struggle bus because so we typical breakfast foods here, you know, you think cereal, pancakes, waffles, toast, something that is full of starch, carbohydrates, right? And while there's nothing inherently wrong with these foods, I don't ever like to say like a food is good or a food is bad. It's just what this does to your body. Exactly. It's made up of different things, right? So those typical breakfast foods are made up of mostly carbohydrates, which gets broken down into sugar very, very quickly in your body. Your body loves to use that fuel source. However, it gets broken down into sugar very quickly, floods your bloodstream. Your body becomes overwhelmed with being able to handle that all at once. And that's why you might have a little bit of energy, but then you crash. Right. And then that leads to a lot of um, not so glamorous decisions that follow. <laughs> <laughs> so you're suggesting that maybe we go savory instead of sweet. Yes. So that is the first thing that I love to suggest because it's simple to remember, first of all, right? And if we can incorporate some more savory foods first thing in the morning, that means that those foods are higher in protein and fat which is going to be broken down much more slowly by your body, which is going to give you more sustained energy versus a big spike and a big crash. And you were talking about these uh, uh, savory items like high in protein, healthy fats, and maybe even some vegetables as well. Not something that people necessarily think of when they think of breakfast or the first meal of the day. Yeah. So if we want to get, you know, really, really optimized, throw some vegetables in there first thing. And you actually really want to do that with any meal that you eat, because what the vegetables do, vegetables have a lot of nutrients, they have a lot of fiber, and they don't have a lot of sugar. And when your body breaks down the vegetables, it actually creates almost like a protective lining on your intestines. And your intestines is where all of the sugar and other nutrients get absorbed into your body. And when we have vegetables first, it makes the absorption rate a lot slower, which helps your body eat all the rest of the food. So, I mean, it's really kind of the order in which you eat these things as well, not yeah. just ha having some spinach in your omelet. Right. So spinach in your omelet is a great it's idea. Yeah. And so like that's a it's a pretty easy, friendly, like, you know, breakfast friendly way to add some vegetables to your breakfast um, because that's not super foreign to us. You know, spinach in your omelet is great. And um, that actually would be a great way to incorporate those foods, even though you're eating them at the same time. That's still OK. You want to think about it more like I'm going to eat my vegetables if I'm having any, my protein, my fats before I'm going to eat like the piece of bread. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a great breakfast would be, you know, eggs, some maybe bacon, um, avocado, maybe you have some arugula or something, and then you have a slice of toast, right? If you were to have all those foods, you would want to eat the greens first, 
then the protein and the fats, and then end with your toast because you're allowing your body to not have a huge blood sugar spike. Whereas if you start with the toast, it kind of defeats the purpose of the rest of it. Well, we've talked about this before too, when we talk about ingesting caffeine first thing in the morning where you should uh, take some water first and then the caffeine. Is this a similar kind of thing? Your body is just, it's slowly waking up to all this and this is a better way of introducing it to the day. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, do we want to electrocute ourselves with all of this (laughs) stimulus at once, you know, or do we want a more gradual increase in energy, whether it is coming through the caffeine or through food, right? Because that's what food is. It provides our body with energy. So how quickly do we want to have that spike? However quickly we have the spike is also however quickly we're going to drop off on the other side. There, I will tell you there are some days I need to electrocute myself with caffeine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh- <laughs> and there's a time and a place for that, right? Like yeah. if you slept terribly and you have a really busy day, sometimes you have to do what you have to do, right? But we're talking about more long-term longevity based practices right. that want to be more of the baseline. Well, and also it's, um, these are things you can do, uh, in small steps, you know, take that drink of water first, maybe before you have the coffee. That's a small step. You can easily do that. Um, maybe incorporate a little bit more of a vegetable green type thing. Uh, maybe just the order in which you eat is, is a way of just moving toward health. Yeah, I really like the switching the order of the foods that you consume first because it doesn't require you to change what's on your plate. Yeah. It just encourages you to think about the order in which you're eating them. And a simple change like that, you will notice drastic differences in your energy levels. You will just from that. Just paying attention to that helps Mm -hmm. you down the road. Yeah. Maggie Fitzpatrick is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. Her column, Moving Toward Health, is in today's issue. It's also online at scdemocratonline.com. Breakfast of Champions we've been talking about. How do you feel about blueberries? I love blueberries. And berries are a really great addition to your breakfast because they're high in fiber. And now we know why they're blue. Yeah. Maggie Fitzpatrick, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. And when we come back, uh, oh, we're not taking a break. We're going to right into this. Uh, Love Letters is the A.R. Gurney uh, play, uh, reading actually, and uh, Act Underground is going to be staging that reading this weekend, uh, Saturday at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. Uh, cultural reporter Valerie Mancy spoke to Greg Triggs, who is one of the actors in it. And they're reading again Saturday at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. Good morning, Greg, and welcome to Radio Chat Skill. I'm happy Thank to have you, you here. And too. you have a wonderful play you are performing in this weekend, Love Letters by A.R. Gurney, that is part of the Salon series at DVAA. And it's a play with a beautiful and long history, it had many name actors and actresses. And so you have some shoes to fill. Yes. I don't know if they knew who I wasn't when they cast me. In okay. This, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really amazing the list of people who have been associated with productions of this show. And, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a beautifully staged and conceived piece because it's kind of a variation on reader's theater. So you get to play with the script and Mr. Gurney's wonderful words and not have to rehearse a ton. You know, it's a variation on reader's theater. And uh, it's really cool. Some of the actors that have done it in the past, uh, Stockard Channing, Polly Bergen, Jane Curtin, Blythe Danner, Bruce Davidson, uh, Ryan O'Neill, who recently passed away, George Reeve, George Siegel, Christopher Reeve, there are a lot, Elaine Stritch. There are a lot of cool people who have done this, and I am excited to, you know, be joining their company in my own small way. And who will be Melissa? Uh, that is going to be, uh, she is going to be played by Lisa Gonzalez who has done quite a few pieces with Act Underground, and she was also very involved with the uh, WSPL podcast that was being done during the pandemic. She's a wonderful actress. And can you tell us a little bit about the play itself? 
It follows the relationship from early pen pal and flirting phase to um, a fully realized relationship between two people from about, gosh, 1935, 36, uh, until the early 70s. And they, you know, they are friends, they are confidants, they are best friends, they are in love with each other. And it's kind of a, are they going to end up together or not? Or is love just enough? Is it, is it better to have loved and not ended up together than to not have loved at all? You know, it's kind of a will they or won't they uh, play. And it's um, it's very touching and beautiful. I remember seeing it a couple of times. Yes, it's beautifully written. And Kyoshin Lore, who is uh, the head of Act Underground Theater, is also our director, and she's brought wonderful sensitivity and insights to the show. It's it's very touching, and there are times it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. I, I, I'm really enjoying being part of it. Well, that's great for all of us in the community to have the opportunity provided right there in Narrowsburg. And that is this coming Saturday. Part of the salon series at the DVAA. And they have got wonderful things happening all yes. throughout February and March uh, as part of the salon series. And it's at 2 p.m., mm-hmm. and you can get more information about this event and the other Salon Series event, as well as the artwork on display at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance, uh, dot org. And the show is free. We should mention that the show is free. And uh, thank you to WJFF for supporting DVAA and Love Letters. That's culture reporter Valerie Bancy speaking to you. Greg Triggs, one of the stars of Love Letters, Act Underground Theater Company's reading of A.R. Gurney's play at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance on Saturday. Tomorrow on Radio Chatskill, local DJ Mark Partridge previews his new show on WJFF, debuting Sunday night, called Ambient Barn. It's exploring all the different sounds of electronic music, and it's produced in his barn in Sullivan County. That's tomorrow. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Narrowsburg Union and Catskills Curated, presenting products of regional artists, artisans, makers, and craftsmen. Gift wrapping and shipping available on site. NarrowsburgUnion.com The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, dedicated to building community through performance, learning, markets, and good times. TheCooperageProject.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Kuzan Grace, KG, doing African American history during the month of February. Black History Month was originally created to fight ignorance and to prevent the continuation of misconception about black people and their history. So I'll be doing presentations on black history from then until now. So please check me out Tuesday on the Music Emporium. Greetings, I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, a show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me for the debut of Virtual Soundscapes on February 15th at 10 p.m. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Catskill. An update on the weather. There are some updates on to some, of some closures and delays. The E.B. Crawford Public Library has a delayed opening until noon today due to inclement weather. The Mamakating Library will be closed for the day. The Board of Trustees meeting is still on the schedule for 6 p.m. this evening. Also, the Monticello Central School District's uh, offices are closed is closed today, and the offices of the Pike County Government Administrative and Court offices remain closed today. 
due to inclement weather. Updated restrictions in Pennsylvania, a couple of road closures. Uh, eastbound 84 in Pike County in Matamoras Township. There's a lane restriction due to a disabled tractor trailer. Also, Route 2001 in Delaware Township from Thiel Drive to Chestnut Ridge Road is closed due to downed trees. Uh, looking at the weather, if you're traveling further south, uh, be aware that uh, this storm shifted, and that means that there's more snow uh, further south of the area. There's still a winter storm warning in effect for Pike County and Southern Wayne County until 1, and in Orange County that goes until 6. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. <laughs> 